friends, good morning. Good morning. Um, we're going to start off this forum in a slightly unconventional way. Uh, those of you who are at 8 o'clock and have already heard my homily for today um, have heard the story uh, that I'm about to tell. Those of you at 1030, you'll just have to hear it twice as well. Uh, but a few weeks ago, after the Bishop Walkabout, Rudy Nickens and I were sitting, and, uh, and he told me that there was no way that the Diocese of Missouri would elect a black gay man bishop. Um, well, after we elected a black gay man bishop in one vote, uh, we, I came back and gave Rudy a big hug. But I, I want to celebrate today because something historic happened. Uh, and from all reports, besides identity markers, um, I've, we've got a lot of mutual friends in the church, uh, Reverend Johnson and I do, and from all reports, he is a phenomenal priest and will be a phenomenal bishop. So I look forward to him being our bishop. So we are going to toast our new bishop. Uh, we are also going to toast that we were such a unified diocese in electing our bishop. Um, but when I was shopping for what to toast with, I came across a couple of bottles of something. And so this is dedicated to Rudy. This is called Yes Way Rosé. <laughs> <laughs> Open some Yes Way Rosé for us, because it was a historic moment yesterday. So. In this last year that you're about to hear us, but for all of the people who have patiently and not so patiently worked for so many decades. Uh, to get us to the point where we could elect a black bishop, a gay bishop. Uh, and uh, for the Reverend Dion K. Johnson, our future bishop. Cheers. Cheers. All right, Mark Smith, would you do master of ceremonies on this deal? I'm going to let Mark. So the, the privilege of announcing the election of uh, the Reverend Dion K. Johnson as the next bishop of Missouri fell to the Secretary of Convention, who is our very own Mark Smith. So I've asked Mark to be our sort of MC this morning and, and coordinate what we're about to listen to. Thanks, uh, Michael. And one of the most challenging moments, uh, certainly of my entire ordained life, was keeping a straight face, looking at the ballot, doing the quick math, which was never my strong suit in the first place, but it was so obvious uh, where, the, uh, where the votes had been cast and to share them uh, uh, objectively with, uh, with convention. Uh, first, let me sort of call your attention to the board, and then I'll provide a little bit of history, and then would like to turn it over to those members of the congregation who were so intimately involved in the first phase of the process, which was uh, search and nominations. The vote, as you can see, uh, exists uh, on the flip chart. Uh, as is required by constitution and canons of the Episcopal Church and certainly our diocese, in order to win an election uh, for uh, Bishop Diocesan, the individual needs to receive a majority of the vote in both houses, one house being the clergy, the other house being the laity, on the same ballot. So yesterday there were 69 eligible clergy votes, 95 eligible lay votes, 50% uh, plus one, would have meant 35 clergy and 48 lay people. The results, uh, the Reverend Stacy Fusell on the first ballot, 18 clergy votes and eight lay votes. Uh, Dion Johnson, 42 clergy votes, which is 60% of the clergy, and overwhelmingly 71 or 75% of the lay votes. So my comment to Mike, for those who have complained from time to time over the course of the life of our diocese that we're being led by a group of radically leftist clergy, not so much, <laughs> not so much. And George Smith uh, with nine votes from the clergy and 16 from the laity. Uh, this process began almost two years ago with an announcement by uh, Right Reverend Bishop George Wayne Smith, our current bishop, uh, of his intent to retire in the spring of 2020. That announcement was shared with Standing Committee, of which I was a member at that point in time, and in the presence of a bishop from the National Church who specializes in assisting dioceses in organizing themselves for discernment, uh, 
uh, and for the process of identifying candidates and ultimately electing a candidate uh, as bishop. Over the course of the next uh, several months, uh, a search committee was appointed uh, by the standing committee and subsequently a transition committee, both with very distinct uh, responsibilities. The search committee to uh, develop a profile on behalf of the diocese, uh, invite uh, applications for uh, the position of bishop, and eventually present a slate of nominees. The transition committee to manage all things beginning with the election, moving forward to the consecration, which will happen next April, uh, and the standing committee to oversee that process. With that as brief background, I'd like to uh, call on those members uh, of the parish who served on the search and nominating committee uh, to join us and talk about what that process was like, how it worked, uh, what didn't work so well, and where your moments of enthusiasm and fear actually were. So I think we have uh, Elena and Colleen, no, uh, Chester, Rudy. Make your way to the front. Please, come on up. Going first. You're first. Me? Yeah, you. <laughs> Reverend Lines, well, you want to begin? Okay, well, um, I'm not real sure what I'm supposed to say. Uh, it was a delight to be asked to serve on the search nominating committee. The committee itself was composed of 17 people. And as I was talking with Elizabeth yesterday, uh, I said this committee represented every uh, descriptive that you could imagine or think of within the Diocese of Missouri. And it was historical in that nature, in that uh, previously, uh, previous search committees have been pretty much homogeneous within the Diocese of Missouri. This one was not. We worked uh, continuously for just about a year, starting from scratch, uh, step one was to figure out who we were. You know, what did this committee, who are these people who have come together? Most of us did not know each other, but we came from across the geographic region of the diocese. Uh, we were excited, but we were fearful. Uh, it's, there's always a fear of you always have this level of fear when you're walking into the unknown. And that's what we were doing, walking into the unknown. Uh, we had our charge of what we were supposed to do, which was ultimately present a slate of candidates to the diocese for the election of the bishop. And though that said in a few words, it was a huge assignment. Um, some of the things that happened on the committee were so encouraging. We had ripples and challenges and uphill issues. But I have to say that the committee at no time floundered internally. Whatever there was that we had to address, that we had to overcome, we did it in a spiritual and Christ-like way. And that was so meaningful to me that even on the tough days, it did, did not devolve into arguments. But it rose to conversation, consensus, and ultimate agreement. And there were issues that we had to address because if you can imagine 17 people from 17 different ideas, 17, 17 different environments trying to come together and meld into one. And I, I'll have to uh, admit to you there was one person uh, who started out with the committee and ultimately uh, left the committee by their own accord and in mutual agreement with the committee. But that's an example of, of the type of intensity with which the committee worked. Uh, and I'm going to stop right there because I want to make sure <laughs> that everyone has an opportunity to speak and then maybe I can come back 
and I'm, you know, I'm still torn between, we had to write, we had to put our signature on two different documents of confidentiality, two different times. And so I'm still hesitant to divulge everything that occurred because I don't know if I'm still breaking that confidentiality. <coughs> At the end of the process, we were directed, now this part of, we have our slate of candidates. Now all of the documents that you have are to be destroyed. So, you know, it, I'm, I still have this internal, I don't want to be the one to break the confidence of the things that occurred over the course of that 10 or 11 month period. So I'm going to stop right there and I'll come back after others have had an opportunity to speak. Well, I'm Elena, and um, I didn't know Rudy went to Holy Communion until we met on the search committee. So that's how much, like, it was just so, like, different people, different, it was so great. And I was, I'm really sad to be done because we actually liked each other, and we actually like meeting every two weeks, every on, every, on a Saturday for three hours discussing the next steps and what we need to do. And we put together all those listening sessions, and then it was a huge document with all this information, and I always make a joke that, you remember February? Because I don't. Because I spent, I spent almost every weekend, weekend day at a different church talking to people. And it was this, I learned a lot about how to be, what Episcopalian means to people and what they want. And like, I'm new to the state as well, so I learned about like rural and, and city. And just, I learned a lot of information and it was a very, very long process. And they asked me at the end if I would do it again. And I said no. <laughs> I was honest, because I was like, this is, this is the longest year of my life, but I would do it again with these people. Yeah, because I don't think I'll ever get look at these people together again. So, only with you. So, that's me. <laughs> I'm Rudy Nickens. Yeah, eight o'clock meets ten thirty. Yeah. That's when. You <laughs> that's how that worked out, yeah, right? Because right. you know we don't mix around here, right? Um, yeah, you know, like Chester, I'm, I'm trying to remember what we can and can't say, so I'm just being being careful in, in the moment. Um, what, what I'll say is, um, as, a, as a person who earns a living as a person directing diversity initiatives, this is like a best example of what you get when you bring people together with all kinds of different identities and perspectives and backgrounds. We were committed to all getting to show ourselves and all be ourselves, and the profile reflected our ability to to listen to the 42 listening set, holy listening sessions that we did and to create a document that filtered through each of our minds and each of our perspectives that then became um, this amazing uh, job description that every candidate said spoke to them because we were honest and open and showed, showed the diversity and the challenges and the strengths of the diocese. And I think um, you don't get that when you have, as Hester said, a homogeneous group of people doing a task. So the value is always put together a really, really strong group of people from the beginning who can represent um, the, the task ahead. And we attracted uh, a diverse group of, of applicants and, um, and from what I can tell, presented a historic um, group of, of finalists to the nominating committee, to the um, transition or to the whoever, standing committee. Standing. Yeah, all these committees. Um, so I, I think, you know, um, in many ways, uh, this historic moment was, was uh, ordained by an intention from the beginning to, to make sure we had uh, an inclusive group of people working to get the job done. And, and, you know, for Mike to get three people from one parish um, into, onto the nominating committee, um, I think he said something to me like, well, they wanted a diverse pool of people to work on it, and uh, we do that better than any other diocese, any other <laughs> parish in the diocese, so that's how we got to I'll, I'll say a word about that. There is some, or there was, I would say at this point I don't think it's relevant, but it, at, there was some consternation at both Holy Communion and the Cathedral because both of our parishes had three people on the nominating committee, and no other parish had more than one. And that was a little bit of a frustration for especially some of our rural um, siblings that, that are outside of St. Louis. But we had a clergy conference back in May where some of that those grievances were aired. 
and I got the chance to stand in the room and say, look, I got asked by standing committee, and Holy Communion has to do this a lot, and so does the cathedral, but I got asked by standing committee, will you help us make this slate look diverse? And when they go looking for um, folks that represent our wider region, they've got to go to Holy Communion and the cathedral and um, a couple other places, but, but we do that. It, for those of you who went to the walkabout, I can't remember how many people came up to me when we were down at Trinity in the Central West End and pulled in my sleeve a little bit and said, Mike. And I went, yeah, we are in such an old white church. I can't remember. Because yeah, it, it, it does. The diocese does not look like Holy Communion. So I had to remind them of that, and I've had less consternation since then. Do you all have any questions? They may not be able to answer. Um, I'll stand up here in case, you know, if they're feeling iffy, I'll come up with an answer and they can either nod or not nod or, you know. Rudy. I have a question. When you were going around to the 42 different parishes to get their ideas, what they want or what they want for a mission, as the general consensus, did it come up that a lot of the same um, the questions, that a lot of the same answers came up? Yeah, maybe you got like maybe one or two off-the-wall things that people were looking for at Bishop, or was it more like you had to really sit, put a slate together for all the different responses that you received? Can I ask Elena to, because I went, to, a, I went to a lot of churches, and I like, heard the same things. Same and same thing, like even if it was out in the city or it was out in the county, it was just the same things, and they came up a lot, so. Wow. Yeah, like, what was the most off-the-wall thing? Not off the wall. Well, what are some themes? I mean, you, yeah. you, you wrote some of the themes into the um, profile, so you can talk about that for sure. The, the, uh, we didn't go to the parishes asking what kind of bishop are you looking for. We went to the parishes and saying, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? How do you see this diocese moving forward? What is it that you think we should focus on? And that's how we developed the profile. And, and off the top of my head, one of those imperatives was address the issue of racism, address the issue of social justice, was another one. Bring this diocese closer together among the people was three, and there are two more. And the reason I don't have them in my head is because I said, well, the work that I'm doing in the diocese does not directly affect when I say the work that I'm doing on the Commission on Dismantling Racism is not directly engaging in those two. Can somebody help me with their five and the other two? One of them was communication, wasn't it? Was it communication? I'm drawing a, a complete blank on that. But it's in your profile. Those five imperatives emerged as a result of the conversations throughout the diocese about what is it that you think this diocese ought to focus on in terms of moving this diocese forward. So racism, social justice, and bringing the people of the diocese closer together. And I'll do my uh, commercial here right now. So one of the things that we're doing on Saturday, December the 7th, at Trinity Episcopal Church in the Central West End is working on one of the emerging imperatives with our annual conference. Uh, and celebration, and you're all invited to attend. It starts at 10 o'clock. You have to make reservations because we're serving lunch, but just go to the diocesan website, and we're going to be working on one of our imperatives of bringing the diocese closer together. Okay. Yes, sir. Was that fifth one the great <coughs> question of the Middle Ages? Should the Pope be a theologian or a canon lawyer? I, I'm, I'm not going to guess. I'm not going to guess at it. I'm just, I just don't recall. Adam, um, I don't know if you can speak on this because of the confidentiality agreement, but for the candidates who maybe initially expressed interest and perhaps the three finalists also, you said that our profile really resonated with them. Was there any particular aspect of the profile that you know kind of stood out for the candidates that was appealing was it the racism piece was it geography what did you speak to that so one of the things that i remember hearing from several of the candidates is that um they weren't really seeking a job as a bishop 
they were not like called calling to be a bishop wasn't the thing that they spoke to, but they were called to serve this diocese by the they was called to, to the role that this profile put out. Um, and I think yesterday during the during the um, service when the uh, bishop from Kansas uh, from Kansas um, spoke and and uh, reflected some, read some of the things, actually quoted some of the things from the profile that uh, resonated with her. I think those are the things that resonated with the, the, the candidates as well. Our honesty, you know, we did not put together a, a profile that just made everything look sweet and sugary and pretty. You know, we didn't try to hide the warts. We really talked about what, what people said are the challenges as well as the strengths and assets of, their, of the region. And I think that was probably the thing I heard most often, like that they felt like we had done a job of telling a, an honest and real story. So to that, sorry, I just pulled up the profile. So the five, and it's interesting you phrased it the way you did, Chester, because I, I honestly think part of the reason these didn't come to mind is because not only is it not part of your diocesan work, but Holy Communion's ahead of the curve on the other two. So the three that Chester um, identified were draw the clergy and people and congregations of the diocese together, continue our history of witnessing to Christ through social justice, and continue to address challenges of racism. The other two were address congregational instability and improve energy and satisfaction throughout the diocese. Uh, and I will say we are exceptional as a congregation not just for our diversity, but because we're one of two growing congregations in the diocese right now. Um, so uh, there's a different energy here than there is in a lot of the diocese. Yeah. Um, in response to the question regarding the bishops and something that resonated with them, each one of them had, had had a personal engagement in the area of racism slash social justice. Um, so that was high on their agenda. The other thing that uh, stood out was the fact that they interpreted our profile not as saying we want someone to come in and lead us. Our profile says we want someone to come and walk with us to move us forward. So it wasn't like they... We weren't calling somebody to come in and try to fix us, heal us, quote. We're calling somebody to come and be with us who is a spiritual leader yet pragmatic about the issues that confront the diocese so that we can grow and develop and continue to move forward. And that resonated with all of the finalists. Karen? I'll speak to I can speak to that. Go right. I'll right. Um, when we selected our slate, we we said all three of these people could do this job, and we were like we were confident in their abilities. So that's something that we 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 presented a slate not because like we needed three people. We presented a slate of people that we knew could do the job. So can I speak to that? Yeah, go ahead. Lord. <laughs> Being in that space yesterday, it was such an awesome process because. I, I said that it, I felt like whoever had come out, even if it was the person I thought was my number three, if they had been number one, I would have walked with pride to sign. Um, because there was just this real sense of the body of Christ and of a discernment process, not a job interview. Um, for me, I don't know about you guys, that was palpable. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I want to be real transparent about where I was. Um, too. I, I, so I partly organized this forum, programmed this into our life, in case Dion Johnson was not elected our next bishop. Uh, for a couple reasons. Um, we are the congregation that the diocese goes to for when they need people of color to serve on committees. Um, we're also one of the most now known as a queer-friendly congregations um, in, the con in the diocese. And we've never had an openly queer person on a slate before to be our bishop. And only one time before in our history have we had a person of color on a slate to be the bishop. And Mark and I were trying to remember the date. We think it was 1976. 
75, so it would have been consecrated in 76. And, and there was a bit of, when the clergy learned that, uh, the, the way that the last election went down, um, that candidate, for, they, they didn't have one ballot. They had several ballots because the um, African-American clergymen, because in 1975 there were no clergy women, um, kept winning the clergy vote. And a white um, clergy person, clergyman, kept winning the lay vote. Uh, and they kept having to have more ballots until the clergy came around and voted for the bishop who ended up. Now, that was, and that was something that the clergy had to digest a little bit um, when, when they figured that out. This was before our slate was announced. And then at our next meeting, we realized if we had elected, that would have, he would have been the first African-American diocesan bishop in the church. It wasn't until later that the Diocese of Washington, D.C. elected John Walker, who was the first black diocesan bishop, head bishop, his diocesan bishop. There were a few assistant bishops, suffragan bishops, but there hadn't yet been a, a head bishop who was black. And so it would have been very historic if we had done it then. Now, since then, we've had a couple bishop elections, and there have been no black um, candidates. And so I organized this forum partly in case we didn't have a historic day, to process together. I didn't think any of the candidates would have been a disaster as a bishop. Um, I know there were people, when we started talking about this process, that were nervous because in previous bishop elections, it would have been possible to get a bishop who might have tried to reel our churches back on um, on doing weddings for same-gender couples, you know, 10 years ago, or doing... And there was, there was some anxiety in the congregations about what does it mean to get a new bishop. Uh, bishop George Wayne has taken us such a long way. Could we go backward on some things? And none of the candidates that were before us would have been disastrous at all. Um, I think any of them would have made a perfectly fine bishop. Uh, but it does mean something particular for this particular congregation that Dion Johnson uh, was elected. And I think it means something very particular for the diocese that that happened so overwhelmingly in just one vote. We weren't divided. And if anything, the laity led us down this path. Um, I also think it speaks, frankly, to the personal qualities um, of Dion Johnson. I mean, we can talk about labels and we can talk about identity, and it means a lot, but we also have a very experienced fine priest who addresses all five of those issues and speaks eloquently to how we're going to move forward on the <coughs> diocese. So I just talked a lot. I want to mix us um, and, and switch out. So I have to keep Elena and Chester here and ask Lori to come up to the front. Rudy, thank you. Got it. And, um, and then I'm going to ask Colleen and Adam and Christian to also come up here. Because they're coming, Mike. Could I say one thing? Say one more thing, yeah. Yes. Um, so here was a conversation on the floor of the cathedral yesterday. Uh, have you thought about who you might vote for? Have you? Yes, I've rank ordered my candidates. I, you know. And whoever is elected, I'll be okay with that. I'll be disappointed if the person who's my first choice is not elected. But I can live with and be comfortable with whoever is elected. So that, that was kind of where people were. It was, you know, there were no losers, but we got a great winner. So. And somebody said to me, I can't remember you, Margaret, somebody who had some insight in and had met with the candidates had said that after the walkabouts, the candidates had, you know, they spent a bunch of time together here. They spent a week going around to different parts of the diocese and, and being interviewed together, you know, talking together. And the three candidates really figured out between themselves that they were all very different candidates. Mm -hmm. And so the three of them had predicted that this diocese was going to elect one of them overwhelmingly, and the other two were going to be fine because they knew that that meant that the diocese was looking for a particular set of qualities, and, and they all three had something very different to offer. <coughs> so... Now you have before you the group that actually voted. Um, and I want to explain that a little bit. So we are a democracy as a church. Uh, we have, uh, uh, every year, we elect uh, lay representatives to the diocesan convention. It used to be for a long time Holy Communion elected one every year, and then we grew too much and threw a wrench in the system. So now every third year we have to elect two because we get four lay representatives. That's a good thing. Um, it just means that the rector has to remember to get two on the ballot instead of just one. 
Um, if you're interested in serving as delegate to diocesan convention, Adam Pearson rolls off. This was his last convention. Uh, thank you. Uh, for three years of service. But our, our nominating committee, um, which right now consists of Gene Parker, Marlene O'Brien, myself, and Elisa Williams, um, and by virtue of leaving office, Adam Pearson, uh, will be meeting probably, we may not only, we may only meet virtually, but we'll get together and we'll talk about who we're going to nominate. The nominating committee is structured by our bylaws. Um, so if you're interested, talk to one of us. Um, we're, we will need to elect one person to be our diocesan delegate. Uh, and then all of the clergy of the diocese. So there are things like the bishop where we vote separately, clergy and lay. And then most things, honestly, we just hold up green and red cards, pro and against. Um, and it's just a, a vote of the majority. And most things these days in the diocese, it's just really obvious what's winning and what's not. So um, it's either passed unanimously or passed really <coughs> unanimously with a little bit of consent most of the time. But we had, um, we met on Friday and, um, and Saturday at the cathedral. Um, this year we actually elected two um, alternates. So Elena was actually elected as an alternate to go to diocesan convention. Jean Parker was elected last year as the delegate, but Jean's away in Princeton. And so Jean didn't serve, so Elena got bumped up to serving. And then Scott Ferguson was your second alternate. They were presented at our annual meeting last January. And because Elena had to work, surprise, surprise, on Friday, because she'd taken a bunch of time off to do the um, search nominating work, Scott Ferguson was actually with us as our delegate on Friday. Um, voting with us on some other things. Do you all have any questions for us as diocesan delegates about the bishop process? Can you explain the voting and why it's so significant that this was one vote? I'll let our secretary do that. The, <coughs> the requirement that uh, a candidate receive a majority of votes on the same ballot uh, in both houses. Several criteria obviously are established. <coughs> so not just winning 50% plus one, but winning so overwhelmingly, I think, sent a very positive message, as Mike just said, uh, that had been affirmed and discerned by the candidates themselves during the walkabout period. We were looking for a bishop with a defined set of skills that we would know when we saw him or her. And it was clear yesterday we knew exactly who that person was going to be. The second thing that was important uh, was the uh, strong and powerful witness of the laity across the diocese. Uh, wasn't uh, shared, but in, uh, as the transition committee pulled together the four walkabouts, I think we were all impressed with how similar we were, uh, rural and urban, large and small, similar we were in our hopes and aspirations uh, for the new bishop. Uh, so that we would see that reaffirmed in the vote uh, was, I think, uh, extremely important. Let me give a little bit of context, too, because um, I'm the only clergy person up here who's been through multiple uh, bishop elections as a clergy person. So for a long time in the Episcopal Church, you would see a slate of at least three, sometimes as many as six candidates. Um, often, for at least over the last 10 years, often that slate would be, if it was six, it would be five white men, one person of color, and one woman. Um, and for a long time, it was like, really, they were sort of your your token candidates, and one of the um, white men would get elected. And that, that's just historically how it's been. When I was in the Diocese of Washington, I was a brand new transitional deacon. We elected Bishop Marianne Buddy. There were two women on the slate. I think it was five people on the slate. And we went like, four or five rounds, uh, and it was because basically the women clergy of the diocese had all decided that they were going to have a woman bishop, but there were two women on the slate, Jane Shaw, or Jane Gould and Marianne Buddy, and we just kept going rounds and they kept trading votes back and forth. They both were, uh, so eventually Jane Gould called the convention and bowed out, and so she took her name off the slate, and then the next vote, Mary and Buddy won. So that's more the pattern, is you would have multiple votes for bishop. 
Um, we're in a really interesting season in the life of the Episcopal Church, uh, really partly because we're hitting a retirement. It, you know, we, we had ordained for a long time a whole bunch of people who were boomers. Uh, and there were folks that started, that the boomers um, were, a lot of them encouraged to go to seminary when they were in their 20s. And then there were a lot of boomers that came in in the second wave in the 80s and 90s when for a while the Episcopal Church was, the average age at seminaries was up in the 40s because we had this narrative that you should have some life experience before you go to seminary. And so a lot of folks that were entering the clergy were second and third generation. And so we, but what that has meant is that we are really stacked with the boomer generation and especially Generation X is underrepresented in the, um, in the Episcopal Church leadership. But it means that we have a whole slew of retirements that have already happened and that are happening. And so there were something like 25 or 26 bishop elections open um, within the year of ours. And a lot of places have had a lot fewer candidates than we have. The Diocese of San Diego had only one candidate when they announced their slate. Diocese of Minnesota just announced this weekend they only have two candidates on it. So that we had a slate of three is actually, we're, we're on, the, on the bigger slates right now. Um, and that out of a slate of three, we didn't have to sort of eliminate one before we could get a majority is a big deal. Karen, I'm sorry, do you have a question? You answered my question, but um, was it a hard sell to bring somebody to St. Louis? No. Well, um, probably not. Uh, one candidate on the slate was from a very small town between uh, located 100 miles from Erie, Pennsylvania, and 80 miles from Buffalo, New York. So, uh, But they had previously lived in a large metropolitan area, so that was a no. Uh, the bishop-elect uh, lives in a what I would characterize as a uh, rich bedroom community, uh, so coming to St. Louis may be a new experience in terms of living in a larger living in a larger metropolitan area, although he has lived in the New York area. So uh, I don't, and he, uh, that area in Michigan is cold in the wintertime. So, I mean, that's not, he'll probably have an improvement in weather in terms of, of the cold. Do you understand we don't really know because yeah. you don't know who, who, who didn't apply for the yeah. job? Right. That's yeah. the thing, like, everybody who applied for the job wanted to come here. Yeah. As far as I know, there's no upper limit on the size of the slate. Um, it, there are, I to get at Karen's question a little bit, I think there are places where it is attractive to go be, I mean, like, we have a harder time writ large doing clergy searches than they do in, say, the Diocese of California, which is San Francisco, or the Diocese of New York. Um, and... When the Diocese of Chicago, a good friend of mine, is the clergy co-chair of their Bishop Search Nominating Committee, and they've already had more inquiries about applying than we did. Now, the funny thing about that is she keeps telling me, like, it's a way better gig to be the Bishop of Missouri because you have a lot more financial resources as the Bishop of Missouri than you do in Chicago. In Chicago, they're facing a huge budget deficit in the diocese, and that bishop's probably going to have to do some staff reduction. Here, we've had budget surplus for, or, or balanced budget for a long time, and the bishop is the sole trustee of a $30 million trust fund uh, that um, Reverend D.I.K. Johnson will have total direction over. Um, now, there's a good group of people that advise on that, but that's a pretty rare thing for a bishop to have. <coughs> Mike, you were talking about the baby boomers retiring. Right now, I don't know if you know or not, but we have 40% of our, of our diocese has no priests, and I overheard somebody talking the other day with them I was just at a conference where they were talking about this. The, um, overall, we have a clergy shortage in the Episcopal Church. Um, there are far more churches looking than there are priests looking at the moment. And it's, it is a potential problem. I mean, we're, we're lousy with clergy at Holy Communion, frankly. Um, and you, but you're going to see that. Mark Smith is going to be. Can you tell them a little bit about your plans for the next? One of the uh, ways that we're going to try and respond to that is uh, for those parishes who are robust with clergy as we are, 
uh, to make some of our people available to those congregations that currently are without clergy, and we'll have a very difficult time recruiting them. So beginning in February, uh, section once a month, once every five weeks, I'll serve at uh, St. Albans uh, in Fulton uh, and St. Mark's in Portland, both of which are close to the parish that I was raised in, uh, Grace in Jefferson City. But we'll join several other clergy people in making certain that those communities continue to thrive and have access to sacramental ministry on a regular basis. And I think those of us who are doing those kinds of things are awfully grateful to the people of Holy Communion and to the other congregations uh, for freeing up some of our time to do just that, to help folks in need. Yeah. Other questions? Mark, as secretary or, or other folks, could we talk a little bit about what else happened at convention? Because we didn't just elect a bishop. Sure. Uh, normal business of convention, uh, uh, as you would expect, uh, looks at issues related to the budget. Uh, there were some questions uh, raised with respect to the amount of uh, money that we provide to congregations that are struggling, essentially asking the question, are we pouring good money after bad? Uh, but that issue has been resolved year in and year out uh, with a very firm commitment from uh, the delegates and certainly from the bishop's staff uh, that we have an obligation to support and nurture congregations that are willing to continue uh, to plow the fields. Uh, Standard resolution uh, approved for compensation of the clergy, uh, which seeks to ensure that there is comparability uh, across uh, various settings and certainly across uh, genders. Uh, a motion to uh, support uh, advancing a ministry uh, to address the ongoing opioid crisis, uh, not only within our diocese, but as part of a national effort within the church. Uh, and finally, uh, an interesting uh, resolution uh, on the formation of a liturgical commission within the diocese to inform us uh, of the liturgical flexibility that we may uh, choose to pursue within the broader context of uh, potential revisions to the prayer book. There was some debate uh, about uh, how that committee ought to be formed and to what extent uh, people needed to have specific expertise uh, in liturgical uh, uh, studies. Uh, to serve on that committee, or whether uh, more broadly, uh, as a, a very open uh, community, uh, we welcome all voices. And uh, toward that end, uh, I think we found some common ground uh, by suggesting that everyone is welcome who brings gifts to that. Mark's being very kind. Your rector stuck his own foot in his mouth in those debates. Uh, and I, I said that the resolution, as it was written, uh, smelled of elitism. And then I was quickly reminded that any time you use the word elitism around Episcopalians, they get really nervous and will smack you down. Uh, it's sort of like the word racism. We don't like to hear it. Uh, so, But it, I think it, the debate that ensued was good for the sense of what is this commission about. Because the way it was written, I thought it looked like you had to have a PhD in liturgy. And that's not going to get us toward experimentation. So it was good that we had the discussion. But I, I wished I could pull back some words that I had said. Uh, as you heard from uh, Chester's uh, presentation and the comments from our delegates who served on uh, the search and nominating committee, there was a second committee appointed uh, uh, named uh, the Transition Committee charged with operationalizing uh, the vision uh, promoted by uh, the search and nominating process. That began with the structuring of the walkabouts, certainly the framing of the election rules and procedures uh, that occurred yesterday, but the real work for the Transition Committee, uh, I would suggest, uh, lies in the weeks ahead uh, as we assist uh, the bishop and his husband in preparing for a move to St. Louis, work with uh, Bishop George Wayne Smith uh, on providing overlap and uh, some mentoring, uh, then preparing for a farewell uh, party for uh, the bishop in March and the consecration of uh, Deion Johnson as the 11th bishop of Missouri uh, on the 25th of excuse me, 24th of uh, April, uh, and his seating the following day uh, at the cathedral. Consecration, exciting, will take place at St. Stanislaus, uh, Polish National Catholic Church, uh, on the near north side. And there are several reasons for that. Uh, historically, we've done our uh, consecrations at uh, St. Francis Xavier, the college church at St. Louis University, because we needed the space. We simply don't have a building that's large enough 
uh, to house that. Uh, and it became obvious uh, at our first meeting of the Transition Committee that we had a significant potential for electing either a woman or someone uh, uh, from the LGBTQ plus community and that that would not uh, be acceptable to even our Jesuit friends uh, at St. Louis University. Uh, so we looked at a variety of settings from large mega churches, big box places out in the county, uh, to other denominational settings and finally St. Stanislaus. It's one historic, it's in a uh, revitalizing part of the city. It is a beautiful, beautiful parish with a wonderful reception hall. Uh, and I think uh, for all who will attend, and I hope all of you will join us, it will be a magnificent uh, celebration uh, that day. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask us to go down, and I'll make Lori start, because uh, we pay her. Um, but uh, I'd like you to just say a few words about what it was like for you. Lori, you already have a little bit, but if you want to say a little bit more, what was it like for you to be there? Yeah, I think I just want to reiterate that piece that um, it sounds like a bunch of just resolutions and decision-making, um, but there was the spirit of God was present there, and I don't really have better words than that. Um, but you could feel different energies in the space, um, and that that I invite you to apply for Adam's position so you can come and feel it yourself. It'll be different because it's not a bishop election, but um, coming out of a tradition that went like this. Uh, the Pope on down and getting to sit in the middle of the decision-making body of Christ, it was really um, a powerful experience. So uh, the convention was what I char and characterize as a high-energy convention. I've been to a lot of conventions. Some of our conventions have just been flat. There's no other way to say it. We come in, we do the business, we go home. This was a high-energy convention from the time we started, and I left early, but the energy was still resounding in the room throughout both days. So I, I mean, you could feel it. It was, it was just exciting. I was proud to be an Episcopalian yesterday. Mm. It's my first convention, and I, I was sobbing by the end, but it was just a great day. Yeah. Um, I have had the, <clears throat> sorry, I've had the pleasure of being a delegate for the convention yesterday, but also uh, wrapping up a uh, term on the standing committee in, in December of last year. And part of the process after Bishop announced to us that he was retiring was the standing committee going to a retreat and figuring out, you know, how we wanted to move forward with creating the search and nomination committee. Um, and so I will say it was an honor to be a part of that discussion. I was terrified then, I'm relieved now. Um, but hats off to everybody on the Search and Nominations Committee because it was an extraordinary amount of work that I think culminated in um, <clears throat> a near perfect day yesterday. I think a, a lot of us would, um, would attest to that. And I'll quickly say this, so we, had, we were able to FaceTime with uh, Reverend Johnson, or um, I guess Bishop-elect, uh, Johnson, and um, it was just a, a wonderful experience with him providing some brief commentary to us, and then his husband behind him in support, then the cathedral bells going off um, at the same time was just a really special moment for a lot of us in the room. Most, most of that FaceTime <clears throat> call was just the convention applauding. Yeah. And us crying and the bishop-elect crying. <laughs> <laughs> and, his hus and his husband wiping yeah, away tears in the background. You can see this on video, by the way, on your computer. The whole yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. Um, so this was also my first convention. And it's hard to put into words how powerful it was. Um, as a former Roman Catholic, this is something that I never, a few years ago, would never have dreamed that I could be a part of. The fact that um, everybody had their voices heard before all the votes, um, not just for the bishop, but uh, on Friday it was a lot of the business side of things, and we voted on a lot of things, but um, we, we used Robert's rules, and there was always the option for discussion. Um, as, as we talked about a moment ago, there were some discussions, but it was really interesting that um, the option was always there, and people went up, 
and there was discussion about things and you felt like your voice was really heard. Um, and the energy, I also feel like the Holy Spirit was just with us the whole time. The energy was kind of indescribable, but I, I was really fortunate, um, really grateful that I was asked to be a part of this and that I was able to be a part of such a momentous day. What they said. <laughs> no. um, I was sick last convention, so this is actually my second year, but first time going to convention with Holy Queen. Sorry. But um, yeah, it was really beautiful to see the unity in the Diocese of Missouri. Uh, so, because we don't always have that, yeah. but we definitely got here. So. And we were also grateful that Christian came back from New Hampshire and had to represent us uh, to be their convention. Yeah. Thank you. This is the fifth year in a row that I've served as Secretary of Convention, and as you can imagine, uh, that is a very uh, operational role, and I approach it as an administrative task, uh, so was joyfully relieved as the first hymn uh, began to realize that we were in a holy place about to do incredibly holy business. Uh, and then was reminded, as was mentioned a moment ago, we didn't send up white smoke, we sang <coughs> bells. And that was just about the coolest experience I've had in a long time. So next week we will have a forum. Um, the ever-popular Adam Floyd from Eden Seminary is going to be with us. Uh, so if you can get over your turkey coma, uh, come on Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Adam's going to be talking about something that bothers me every year. And I was so grateful when he um, came up with it. We usually have Adam about this time of year come and talk about something in church history, something to do with Christmas. This year he said, what if we talked about that question, is Jesus in the Old Testament, question mark? Or are we just stealing other people's scripture? All through Advent we read all these prophets, especially Isaiah, but all these prophets talking about the Messiah who's coming, the King who is coming. Are they talking about Jesus? Or are we reading that into the text? Um, Adam is always really engaging, really fun to be with. Uh, and and it, it'll be funny and entertaining, and I am looking forward to it because it's something that bothers me every year when we uh, do that. So we hope you will join us, uh, but we won't be downstairs. We'll be up in Mitchell Hall next Yay! Sunday. <laughs> so join us in Mitchell Hall for the forum next week, and will you help me thank our, our delegates and our members of the Search and Nominating Committee for all of the work that they have done.